Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. It's uh, taken way too long, but I've been learning lately about something in American history called the Compromise of 1877. I don't know how many of you know anything about this, but it happened after the Civil War. You know, right after the Civil War, um, Reconstruction took place. And Reconstruction involved, in part, the occupation of the South by federal troops to ensure that slaves that had been set free would remain free because that couldn't be taken for granted. And so there was this occupation of the South for a number of years after the Civil War, and things began to really improve for freed slaves, for black people in the South in those years, uh, increasing economic opportunity. Uh, and in 1870, just five years after the Civil War, the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, which basically said that neither the federal government nor state governments could keep people from voting based on the color of their skin. And so black folks started going to the polls in great numbers, particularly in the South where they were in the majority and they began winning office. And so they were taking seats in local government and in state government, state legislatures. Uh, there were 14 blacks that were elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from the South, all of them Republicans, by the way. This was the party of Lincoln, after all. And, and then um, uh, two blacks were elected even to the U.S. Senate. And things were really starting to look up uh, for black people and, and the opportunities they would have going forward. But then the election of 1876 happened. And uh, in the election of 1876, the Republican Rutherford B. Hayes lost the popular vote to Samuel J. Tilden, the Democrat, but won the Electoral College by one vote. Does any of this sound familiar? And you thought this was uh, something that only happened in recent years. No, it happened in 1876 as well. In fact, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes won the election by only one electoral vote, 185 to 184. And as you can imagine, the, the Democrats, based on that result, were reluctant to concede the election. The whole election was in dispute. Carrying right into 1877, when in March of that year, you know, the, the president needed to be um, put, installed. And finally... A backroom deal was cut, kind of a secret deal, between the Republicans and the Democrats, and it went like this. The Democrats said, we will agree to have Rutherford B. Hayes seated as president if you will end the occupation of the South by federal troops. In essence, if you end Reconstruction and you take all of the federal troops out of the South, then we'll agree that Rutherford B. Hayes is the president. And so that's what happened. Hayes was installed as president, all the troops were pulled out of the South, and then guess what? The Southern Democrats 
figured out ways to uh, put laws into place that uh, kept blacks from being able to vote. The, the blacks who had enjoyed a majority and, and were enjoying political success suddenly were shut out of the electoral process. Uh, they, they lost their seats in state legislatures, in the House, in the Senate. Uh, in addition, those uh, Southern Democrats succeeded in passing Jim Crow laws, you've heard of those, that were intended to, to suppress black opportunity to keep them from owning property and having good jobs and all kinds of things, making sure that, that uh, whites and blacks stayed segregated. And, and, uh, and, and in, essence, in essence, what happened was with the withdrawal of federal troops from the South, uh, those blacks who had just had a taste of freedom were made virtual slaves again. And it remained that way for 80 plus years until finally the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Now, the reason I raise all this is just to ask you to imagine for a moment what it must have been like to be a slave who has been set free and you're just starting to enjoy the first taste of freedom only to be made a slave all over again. No one would choose that fate, would they? No one would ask to be made a slave once they had known freedom. And yet in the passage of scripture we're looking at today, Paul says that's exactly what some Christians are doing. They're choosing slavery over the freedom they have in Christ. Don't let that be you. Our passage in Galatians 5 begins today by saying, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, throughout Paul's letter to the Galatians, he's argued against the influence of false teachers in Galatia, who have advocated that Gentile believers in Jesus need to start obeying the law of Moses. And he's been amazed at how easily some of these Christians have been persuaded to give up the freedom they have in Christ and willingly make them slaves, themselves slaves of Jewish law. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul made a theological case for the sufficiency of the gospel. He, he showed us that God's program for our salvation was always about the promised Messiah. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, not by keeping the law. The purpose of the law was never to, to, to earn our salvation. Christ came to redeem us, to adopt us, to make us heirs of God. And at the end of chapter 4, as we saw last week, Paul urged us not to forget who we are. And he used an illustration from the Old Testament to say, we are much-loved children of Sarah, the free woman, not children of Hagar, the slave woman. And having made his argument as powerfully as he could make it, he now urges us in the final two chapters to apply what we know. And so we begin chapter 5 with an exhortation. Christ has set you free. Don't let anyone put a heavy yoke of slavery on you again. Stand firm in your freedom. These Judaizers who, who want, to, want you to obey the law of Moses are kind of like those old Jim Crow Democrats who, who wanted to take away the freedom you have just begun to enjoy. Don't let them do it. The appeal here is for an obstinate perseverance in freedom as the only proper response to the attempt of these false teachers to bring Christians once again under the heavy demands of the law. He says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now, whereas in chapters 1 and 2, 
Paul defended himself against the criticisms of those who said he's not much of an apostle and, and the gospel he preaches isn't much of a gospel. And in chapters 3 and 4, Paul made a theological argument for resisting the legalism of these false teachers. Here in chapters 5 and 6, Paul begins to give us practical instruction to keep us from getting sucked again, into legalistic enslavement. He wants to show us how to live as free men and women in Christ. And so he gives us here three strategies that help us stand firm in the freedom that is ours in Christ. So if you're going to stand firm in your freedom in Christ, here's strategy number one. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else. Beware of any so-called gospel that tries to tell you Jesus plus something else equals salvation. Or Jesus plus something else will, will increase your favor with God. In the case of the Judaizers of Paul's day, they advocated Jesus plus the law of Moses was the formula for being perfected in your salvation. You trust Jesus and then you start acting like a Jew. And if you're a Gentile, that means you start by getting circumcised because that means you're truly serious about keeping the law and pleasing God. And it's this practice that Paul objects to most strenuously as he encourages the Galatian believers to stand firm in the freedom that is theirs in Christ. He says in verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Uh, your faith in Christ will be doing you no good because now you're trusting in something else instead. You can either trust in Jesus' work on your behalf, you can trust in his death and resurrection as sufficient for your salvation. Or you can go and get circumcised thinking that will somehow save you or make your salvation more certain. But when you start doing that, when you start performing works hoping they can save you, you show you're not really depending on Jesus. If you get circumcised the way the, the Judaizers want you to do, you're showing you don't really trust Christ. Genuine faith in Jesus doesn't hedge its bets. It doesn't say, well, you know what, I'll trust Jesus, but you know, I'll go and do this other thing you know, just to make sure. No, Paul says, by the way, if, if you get circumcised, that's just the beginning of your obligation, not the end. He says, you can't just keep one law and think that makes you righteous. You, in essence, are signing up to obey the whole law. And so he says in verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you accept circumcision as necessary for having a right standing before God, then you are in essence accepting the whole heavy yoke of Old Testament law, which is impossible to keep. You are in effect choosing law keeping over the work of Christ. Think of it this way. Let's suppose I have a balloon here and, and uh, I, I want to keep the balloon in the air. You know, keeping the balloon in the air is, is uh, the essence of righteousness, right? Keep that balloon off the dirty old ground. Uh, so there are two ways you can go about that, right? One way you can keep the balloon in the air is to hit it and then hit it and then hit it again and hit it again and hit it again. Uh, that's kind of what the system of law keeping is like. You know, hit it with the law, hit it again, hit it with this law, with that law, and we're going we're gonna to work to keep that balloon in the air. But you know what's going to happen? Eventually, that balloon's going to get away from me, 
uh, you know, out of my reach such that I'll, I'll miss it and it'll fall to the ground. Or I'm, I'll get tired of keeping the balloon in the air and I'll just give up and it'll fall to the dirty old ground. That method is destined to fail. Or the other alternative is to do what? Fill the balloon with helium, right? I mean, that's like being filled with the Spirit through the grace of Christ. It doesn't depend on my effort to keep the balloon in the air. What's, what matters is what's being done to the balloon, what's filling it. To, to accept circumcision and law is like choosing the hit the balloon method that's destined to fail. You're choosing the never-ending obligation of legalism over the freedom of God's grace. Paul says, you're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by law. You have fallen away from grace. Your faith must trust exclusively on Christ or not at all. A Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. You will either rest in the grace of God or you will labor under the heavy yoke of the law. You must either accept Christ, the whole of Christ in his saving power, or you will have to keep the whole of the law. You can't have it both ways. He says in verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. If it's righteousness you're after, you'll never get there by trying to obey the law. It's by faith in Jesus we're declared righteous before God. It's through the work of the Spirit in our lives that we're transformed from the inside out and we become more righteous than the law could ever make us. And when Jesus comes again and brings us to glory, the righteousness of Christ himself will be fully realized in us. That's what true followers of Jesus are hoping for, depending on Circumcision and other works of the law have nothing to add to what Christ has done for you and through you. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, Paul says, but only faith working through love. So Paul says, whether you're circumcised or not really doesn't mean anything to God. He doesn't care one way or the other. So make sure you're not doing it, though, thinking that it will somehow add to your salvation or it will earn favor with God. Don't do it because the legalists are telling you that God requires it. God is not impressed with flesh trying to carry out the demands of the law. What God wants to see is your faith working itself out in love. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't let anyone steal your freedom and put you again under the heavy yoke of slavery to the law. Don't let anyone persuade you that you need Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus the law. Jesus plus this list of rules. Jesus plus the Book of Mormon. Jesus plus the, the watchtower. Jesus plus these rituals. Don't let anyone tell you that you need Jesus plus anything. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else because Jesus paid it all. Jesus has already done everything necessary to set you free from the guilt of your sin. Jesus has done everything necessary to set you free from the bondage of sin, the grip of sin 
on your life. Jesus has done everything necessary to make you spiritually alive before God. Jesus has done everything necessary to make you righteous before a holy God. Jesus has done everything necessary to empower you to live a life pleasing to him. Jesus has done everything necessary to prepare a place for you in heaven. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So stand firm in your freedom. Paul is saying, don't let anyone make you a slave again. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else. Now here's strategy number two. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else, and then be discerning about whom you can trust. Be discerning about whom you can trust. Because there are plenty of people out there who would influence you away from Jesus and into slavery. This whole letter was written by Paul in response to teachers who had gone through Galatia behind Paul, teachers who had questioned Paul's authority as an apostle, teachers who had questioned uh, the the gospel Paul had preached, teachers who had persuaded at least some of the Galatians to, to, yeah, trust in Jesus, that's a good start, but now you need to also keep the law of Moses. Now that you trusted Jesus, you better get circumcised and start keeping the law because that's what God really wants from you. Paul said earlier in this letter that those who preach such a gospel should be eternally condemned. It's pretty strong language. He gets even stronger in the verses here to come. Paul adds to this warning about these false teachers here in in chapter 5 as if to say, you know, these, these folks can be pretty persuasive. But you need to be discerning or you'll end up living again as slaves under a yoke that's too heavy to bear. He says in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul often uses the, the theme of running a race to describe living the Christian life. And in this case, he said, you started off from the starting block so well. Who got in your way? Who hindered you? The, the, the figure of speech here is of somebody cutting you off. You know, a runner stepping in your path so as to get you off stride and causing you to stumble. Who did that? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. He's saying this legalistic doctrine that they're trying to persuade you of doesn't come from God. He calls you by grace into faith in Christ. The suggestion that you can be saved by works of your own flesh, that's hostile to God's grace. That doesn't come from him. You need to be more discerning about such purveyors of fine-sounding but damaging teaching. In verse 9, he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. False teaching is like that. doesn't take much of it to permeate and spread and grow. A small deviation from truth can do a lot of damage and, and lead many back into slavery again. Paul expects his readers to agree with him and reject what these troublemakers are saying. He says in verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. I'm confident that you're going to agree with me in this. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul's saying, stay clear of these guys so you won't share in their judgment. Let them answer to God for for the way they distort the truth. They're crafty indeed. He goes on in verse 11 to say, I know they brought my name into this. They dragged my name into this, claiming that I, as a good Jew, must support the idea that all Christians should be circumcised. He says, "But, but I, brothers, still... But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? 
In other words, if I agreed with them, why are they trashing me all the time? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, it's, it's true that Paul, on one occasion, did ask a Christian to be circumcised. That was his close associate, Timothy. Timothy was a young believer. He had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, but he'd never been circumcised. And Paul thought, you know, I want to take this guy on missionary journeys with me, but that means we're often going to have to go into synagogues because that was Paul's strategy. He would go first to the Jew and then to the Greek. So he'd always start by going to the local synagogue. Now, it could be kind of dicey for Timothy to show up with a half-Jewish pedigree, but never having been circumcised, he might not be too welcome in these synagogues, especially if Paul was wanting Timothy to be part of the preaching team, if you will. And so, you know, Paul said, hey, Timothy, uh, would you mind getting circumcised so that it'll, it'll remove the offense from these Jews we're trying to reach with the gospel? And Timothy agreed and did it, not for the sake of his salvation, but for the sake of his effectiveness as, as a minister, to open doors, if you will, to, to go into synagogues with the good news of Christ. Paul's saying, don't let them tell you I advocate circumcision and keeping the law as a matter of salvation or as a matter of, of living as a Christian. I don't. If I did, why would they, they be so critical of me as an apostle? Face it. They find the message of the cross offensive. They don't like the idea that they're totally unable to contribute to their own salvation. They like to think that by getting circumcised and trying to obey the law that they can somehow claim credit for their righteous standing before God. Well, Paul says, I wish they wouldn't stop with circumcision. Verse 12 says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And it's like, whoa, Paul, you know, tell us what you really think here. You know, it's pretty drastic stuff. But what's behind this comment may be the practice that was well known to the Galatian Gentiles of a particular uh, pagan sect uh, that worshipped a god called Sibyl. And in these temples to Sibyl, there were pagan priests who, as part of their service to Sibyl, would literally emasculate themselves. And Paul is basically saying, so for these Judaizers to insist on Gentile Christians getting circumcised puts them pretty much on the same level as these pagan idolaters. The bottom line of verses 7 through 12 is to say, look, be discerning about whom you can trust. There are a lot of so-called teachers out there who will rob you of the freedom you have in Christ if you let them. They can be persuasive and even quote the Bible, but the gospel they preach is distorted and may lead you right back to slavery again. Now, you might be saying, well, you know, Dave, that's an interesting first century problem. It's a good thing we don't have that problem today. But we do. Let me give you a very contemporary example. So there's a, a DVD that's been going around by a guy named Kerry Gordon. He's a pastor in, in Iowa somewhere. And the name of the DVD is Enemies Within the Church. It kind of grabs your attention. You're like, What's this about? So a lot of people have been watching this video. And it's, it's a documentary of sorts, and I, I use quotations because as far as documentaries go, it's it's terrible documentary process. He, he, he really cuts some corners in making his case. Very, very persuasive. But it basically starts with the claim, your pastors are being brainwashed. And then it, it, it basically, you know, kind of like the Judaizers said to the, the, the Galatian believers, you know, you can't really trust Paul. He's not a true apostle, and he's not giving you the real truth here. 
That's kind of the same kind of doubt that was raised in, in this video. And then it goes on to basically claim that pastors and evangelical institutions across America are being influenced by communism and are not to be trusted. Now, without offering any real proof or allowing comment from anyone he accuses, he attacks many respected evangelical pastors and leaders, most every evangelical college and ministry you can name, and what's his conclusion? Well, you can't trust all them, so you better listen to me. And what I'm telling you is that we, the church, need to take our country back. How? By returning to Old Testament law. Starting to sound a little eerily familiar. Uh, some of the folks here at Bayside saw this DVD, and they were alarmed enough to ask me to watch it and discuss it with them, which I did, and we've had some really good conversations about it. We treated it as an exercise in discernment. How do you, how do you process this kind of information? And, and we talked about things that he said that should be taken seriously, and there were some things that were worth noting, like the church is under attack from inside and from without, and we always need to be alert to attacks on, on the church, especially uh, doctrinal attacks, false teaching, that might come along. But we also talked about problems uh, with many of his claims and how many of his claims were not substantiated. But, but the biggest problem of all, it came at the very end of the video where he said, we, we need to take our country back, need to get back to the law. And, and I, you know, brought to the attention of the group, is that the mission of the church? To which they said, no. Well, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything Christ has taught us. That's the mission of the church. Now, if you look a little more closely behind uh, the film, and you go online at, and look at Kerry Gordon's online presence, you find out that there is an agenda that he has that's only hinted at in the film itself, but comes out uh, most strongly in that appeal to get back to Old Testament law, because if you do a little digging, you find out that he's what's called a theonomist. Now, theonomy is a, is a theological viewpoint that was very popular back in the 80s and 90s and has largely been debunked, and very few theologians give it much credence anymore. But Kerry Gordon and some others apparently are trying to revive it. But basically, theonomy says that God's law is perfect. The, the law that was given to Israel, that's the perfect law. And all nations, all, at all times, should be obedient to that law. So when he says that, that you know, we need to get back to the law, he means that, that the United, United States needs to adopt Old Testament law as, as its standard and that we won't have any, anything resembling uh, you know, a godly country until we do. And by the way, theonomists will tell you, that the best way to live your life as a Christian, the best way to live your marriage out as a Christian, the best way to live your life together as a church is in obedience to the Old Testament law. You see, there's a lot of teaching out there that sounds credible on the surface. But when evaluated more carefully, followers of Jesus would do well to say, nope, not buying that. I'm not going to let anyone talk me into being a slave again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't let anyone make you a slave again. Stand firm in your freedom. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else. Be discerning about whom you can trust. And then thirdly and finally, be driven by love. 
to serve your neighbor. This too is part of standing firm in your freedom. It might not be apparent at first how this has to do with living out your freedom in Christ, but think about it this way. Paul says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Here Paul is battling another misconception, that standing firm in freedom means going wild, doing whatever you want, living uh, you know, without the law and, and just throwing off all the bonds and doing whatever seems good to you. And, you know, truth be told, that's how the world views freedom, isn't it? Uh, Tim Keller talks about how if you go to a sporting event and they play the Star Spangled Banner or they sing the Star Spangled Banner, when does the crowd really start applauding? It's on the, on the phrase of the song that says, or the land of the free, and then the, the people go wild, right? And you never even hear the last phrase, and the home of the brave, and Tim Keller says, you know, that is really a picture of our society. The, the melody line and our culture highlight freedom as the main theme and value of our society. The problem is that freedom has come to be defined as the absence of any limitations or constraints on us. And he says, by this definition, uh, you know, the fewer boundaries we have on our choices and actions, the freer we feel ourselves to be. But he says, held in this form, I want to argue that the narrative has gone wrong and is doing damage. Modern freedom is the freedom of self-assertion. I am free if I may do whatever I want. But defining freedom this way just doesn't work. It only results in chaos as you do whatever you want and I do whatever I want. You see, when Paul says you were called to freedom, brothers, he's not talking about a freedom to do whatever you want. He's not talking about a freedom to sin, but freedom from sin, freedom from the guilt of sin, freedom from the grip of sin. It's the freedom to finally live as we were always meant to live, not as slaves to sin, but not under the obligation of law we were helpless to keep. It's not a license to sin, but rather it's a responsible life lived by the power of the Spirit in service to God. Freedom does not result in lawlessness, but rather in a holiness of life that serves others in love. He says in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, in Christ, we are free to live up to our highest and best potential, to love others with the same kind of love with which we've been loved. I mean, think about a kite. You know, when is it really free? When it's untethered? You know, when, when the string is cut? No. The kite is at its freest when it's constrained by that, that one string and it catches the wind and it soars high in the sky and, and does what it was made to do. And so also we in Christ are constrained by the love of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. Christian freedom doesn't bring out the worst in us, but leads us to the best expression of our love for neighbor. And in so doing, we fulfill God's law without even being under the law. We rise like the helium balloon and don't have to be hit over and over again because we fulfill the, the law that says, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's last comment in our passage alludes to the fact that the teaching of the Judaizers doesn't have 
this effect. It has the opposite effect. In fact, it's creating division and strife among believers. And legalism usually has that effect. You know, as the more righteous law keepers think it's their job to show everyone else their faults and to keep everyone in line. And that never goes well. I can tell you from firsthand experience, some of the most contentious churches I've ever known have been churches like that. Paul says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed, gulped up by one another. In other words, Paul's saying, look, the proof is in the pudding. The contentiousness of the Judaizers has left in their wake the proof that their message is not really of God. Where people are resting in God's grace through faith in Christ, where people are living out their freedom in Christ and not under the burden of the law, the result will not be people biting and devouring each other, but people loving their neighbors as they love themselves. You know, the last days of the Civil War, the federal cap or the uh, Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, was finally captured by the Union Army, and Lincoln decided he wanted to go visit Richmond. He was advised against it, but he insisted on doing so. People didn't know that he was coming, but he was recognized right away, especially by slaves who had been recently set free by the arrival of the federal army. And slaves thronged around his carriage. And an admiral who was present on that occasion reported that Lincoln spoke to the throng around him and said, my poor friends, you are free Free as air. You can cast off the name of slave and trample upon it. Liberty is your birthright. But Lincoln then also went on to warn them not to abuse their freedom. He said, let the world see that you merit your freedom. Don't let your joy carry you into excesses. Learn the laws and obey them. And so Paul says to us here, for you were called to freedom, brothers, Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. And in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. Stand firm in the freedom that is yours in Christ. Don't let anybody make you a slave again. Be dependent on Christ and nothing else. Be discerning about whom you can trust. And be driven by love to serve your neighbor. And stay tuned for next week when we are going to learn about the most powerful provision God has made for us to live out our freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice today in the fact that for freedom you have made us free. We rejoice in in this amazing development, that we who were dead in trespasses and sins, we who were slaves to sin, have been raised to new life in Christ and have been set free from the guilt of our sin and set free from the grip of our sin and have been set free to live new lives empowered by your spirit, to live the life that you always meant for us to live, to live lives driven by love, to live lives that look an awful lot like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd send us forth today with a fresh appreciation of the freedom we have in Christ. A freedom not to live 
any old way we want to. But freedom to live a life that honors you and is good for us. A life of service to others. Lord, have your way with us. Teach us how to live in the freedom that Jesus won for us at the cross. We ask this in his name. Amen.